Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, I just wanted to echo what Clarence had said earlier about Pastor Rob, because he texted me as well, and I thought, you know what, here you're on the other side of the world, <laughs> and you text us to say, praying for you. You're, you've gone to Africa, left your family to go to this country you hadn't been to before, and yet here he is, he's caring about the, the sheep that God has placed in his charge. And so I just thought, what a good pastor we have. And he, he just asked me to let you guys know what a blessing it's been for him there and how he's seen the church growing both in this, the, the bush out in villages as well as within the more urban areas and how our support in, in giving, just as we did, allows these pastors to minister in this way, to be fed physically, but then also to have this happen as well, where they're fed spiritually. I got a picture of him in his um, African shirt. <laughs> they, they did the same thing when I've gone to Congo. Is one of the gifts they give is often a, an African shirt. So I thought maybe next week, if I can find it, I'll bring out my African shirt and we can, <laughs> we can uh, celebrate together. All right, Romans chapter 8. If you saw in the bulletin, we are on Romans 8, 28, and 29 this morning. We will read verses 26 to 30. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that we are able to turn to your word as your people. That you did not leave us, but you granted us your Holy Spirit, who leads and guides and directs us through your Holy Word. We know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimonies are sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. That it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey, than even drippings from a honeycomb. So grant us your grace by your Spirit. Deal bountifully with us that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Just before we read those verses, just to understand the context in which these verses come, we're in chapter 8, so clearly seven chapters have come before this. And one broad way to outline the first eight chapters of this book, if you have the John MacArthur Study Bible, this is the outline he uses, but depending on any study Bible will give you an outline of, of the books, which is, can be very helpful. So the way John MacArthur outlines it is the first part of chapter 1 is an introduction, second part of chapter 1 through the first part of chapter 3, he entitles Condemnation. For in that section, what Paul makes clear is that all people have transgressed the law of God. 
All have sinned and fallen short of His glory, and because of that, every single one of us deserves to justly be punished forever in hell. But the book doesn't end there. Chapter 3 continues through chapter 5, and that he entitled Justification. That having described and made clear that all of us are condemned by God, Paul then moves on to make clear that God has freely made a way for us to be saved. Condemnation, we need God's righteousness. Justification, God has provided that righteousness for us in Christ. That by grace, through faith in Christ, we can be declared righteous in God's sight. We can be saved. We can come into God's presence. That salvation, that justification, then leads to change in our lives. Justification is our being declared to be righteous. But then the next part of Romans, chapter 6 through chapter 8, is sanctification. How that salvation then gets worked out into our lives. We've been declared righteous, but now God is actually forming and shaping us to become more and more like Christ. And that's where we find chapter 8 is in this this section which MacArthur entitled Sanctification. And in this chapter, we find this very well-known verse. You may know it, and if you know it, you probably have heard it many, many times before. To such an extent that it can even seem like a trite cliche that people just kind of throw out to one another in difficult times. And you almost, in difficult times, you dread someone telling you this verse because the way it's often given to you is just kind of very superficial. Just, you know, God works all things together for good. Sure, your house has been burned down. And I mean, imagine saying this to Job. If you know Job's story, he's very wealthy. All of his kids die. All of his livestock is taken. Um, What else happens? Kids, camels, Yeah, then he goes on to that. And imagine saying to Job, you come as his friends did. You know, Job, God works it all together for good. It'll it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. That's how it's often given to us. And so though we need wisdom in how we encourage one another with this verse, we do have here something that we must learn to constantly tell ourselves. We need, by God's grace, to learn how to ever proclaim this truth to our souls. Because if we come to truly know this verse, it will utterly transform our lives. If we would battle anger, if we would battle anxiety, if we would battle times of deep darkness and sadness, we need, by God's grace, to truly come to know this verse. For if we will know it, it will transform us. So toward that end, we will spend our time this morning meditating upon it. Let's, with that, let's read. We'll go ahead and start in verse 18. So chapter 8, starting in verse 18, we'll read through verse 30. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we'll stop there. So as I said, the the book of Romans up to this point can be summarized as condemnation, justification, sanctification. And within the immediate context of verse 28... I want you to notice that in the verses we read, there was a word and a form of a word that was repeated three times. First, it's in verse 22. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And again, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then last, in verse 26, the last part of it, he says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So what word was repeated? Groan or groanings. And I I have a friend who's is 70s now and every time he gets up what does he do Uh, (laughs) he groans right because of just this the pain it takes him to to move in that way and that's what paul is saying is happening creation is groaning we are groaning and the spirit is groaning on our behalf because of the fact that this is a broken world And we are a broken people. But we long for redemption to come. We know the world is not as it ought to be. We feel the pain. We feel the brokenness. We feel the trials. And because of that, we groan. But in the midst of that groaning is where we find this promise upon which we will meditate. Creation is groaning, we are groaning, the Spirit is groaning, but we know this. We know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. All of the groaning, all of the suffering, all of the futility, all of the darkness, all of that is being worked together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we'll just look at each part of verse 28 in turn. And we'll begin with by looking at the conditions that Paul gives in this verse. We could take the verse out of context, all things work together for good, and just leave it at that. And so anyone, no matter where they are in life, could have that promise. All things work together for good. And in our culture, it kind of there is that optimism, just having a positive thinking. You know, no matter how bad things are, there's always something to be thankful for. Everything's going to work out in the end. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He gives two very clear conditions regarding this promise. This promise is not given to all people, rather only to those who meet these conditions. And really the condition is one condition that is seen on a, on a human side and then on the divine side. What are the conditions? To whom do all things work together for good? To those who love God? and to those who are called according to his purpose. So all things work together for good to those who love God. That is our, us actively doing something, us actively longing for God, us actively serving God, us actively obeying and trusting God. On the other hand, it's also to those who are called according to his purpose, which is something we passively receive. It's not like we can do something and then God will call us. No, He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us how? According to our righteousness? According to our worthiness? No, He says what? That He called us according to His purpose. So God called us because that is what He desired to do. Despite our unworthiness, despite our sinfulness, God called us. God chose us. And it is to those that have, this, that have been given this promise, all things work together for good. So if we would have this promise, we must love God. And if you are here today as one who does not know God, then just realize as we go through this verse, these pro- this promise does not apply to you. Apart from Christ, you can have no assurance that all things are working together for your good. On the contrary, you can know that all things are ultimately leading to your eternal condemnation in hell. Because as you continue to live your life in rebellion to God, you are storing up more and more wrath for yourself for that day when His wrath is revealed. But right now, that can change. Right now, it can be different. You don't have to continue down that path of destruction. This moment you can call upon the Lord and so be saved, as Paul says in Romans 10. Today you can call out to Him. If you realize, yes, I'm on that road, but God, save me. And He will save you. And in being saved, you will become a uh, beneficiary of this promise. So there's the condition. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now let's continue. First he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things. 
What is included in that? All things. Sometimes all is, is limited by the context, but it's clear from this context, all things really does mean all things. It's not just the good things in our lives, it's the, the things we do not like, the unpleasant things, the things that were not according to our plan, the difficult things, the dark things, the even evil and sinful things that go on in our lives. All things. Because we've already seen how this groaning is the context in which this promise is given. So all of this groaning is going on. All of this brokenness, all of this futility. And in that context, Paul says, all things work together for good. Notice further along in the chapter, down in... um, Verse 35, where he's asking, is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? And what does he say in in verse 35? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And his conclusion is no. None of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. But those are the things as well that are included in all things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. To this we might add chronic illness, relational conflicts, financial difficulties, unknown certainties in our lives, constant friction with other people. All of these things and more are the all things. So it really does mean all things. Now, what are these all things? What's happening with all of these things? They're being worked together. And this this picture that Paul is painting, people have used the analogy of weaving something together. If you had a really good friend, um, she was in her, her 80s, and she loved to knit. And so she would take all of this different yarn and she would knit something amazing out of that. And that's this picture here of being worked together is all of these things are being woven together to this specific purpose that God has planned. And it's important for us to see that Paul doesn't say that all things are good but instead that all things are being worked together for good. The difference being that very evil things happen to us and go on in this world. And Paul is not saying that those things are good in and of themselves. Rather, what is is the picture he's painting is that all of those things are being taken by God and are being woven together, are being formed and shaped in order to accomplish this good purpose that he has planned. So there are, using that analogy of of knitting, there's, there's darker thread and there's lighter thread. So if we see the lighter thread as good things that go on in our lives and the darker things as the, the, the difficult trials that take place, there are threads we would say that are good and there are threads that we would say are evil. And yet all of those things are then necessary to accomplish this plan that God has decreed. 
So if you want to knit uh, a blanket that doesn't have all the same color, you need to have various colors of thread. So in the same way, the thing that God has planned to happen in our lives requires that all of these things happen, and he takes those things and works them together for good. A great example of this from the Old Testament is, is Joseph. read Joseph not too long ago with my son in a, in a storybook Bible, and the picture that's painted there is not quite to the degree of what happened to Joseph, because it is a kid's book, so some things are left out. But if you know the story of Joseph, very, very evil things happened to him. His brothers did not like him, and so what did they, what did they do? The kids should know, right? What, what happened to Joseph? What did they do with him? They put him in a pit. And then that was good enough, so what did they do after they put him in a pit? They sold him as a slave to Egypt. And in Egypt, it almost seemed like things were going pretty good for him. You know, the, the, the master he was working with, though he was a slave, promoted Joseph, but then he was falsely accused, and as a result of that accusation, he was then thrown into prison. Once again, it th- seemed like things were going pretty good. He interprets this dream for a man who is then released, and Joseph says to him, don't forget me. Say something to Pharaoh. But of course, he forgot and it was two, over two years later before he remembered about Joseph. All of this took some 13 years. One difficult thing after another. Abandonment, abuse, slander, deep, deep suffering. And yet God had a plan all along. Even though all of these things were happening to him, even though all these people were meaning these things for evil against Joseph, God had a good plan and God was at work for good. And listen to how Joseph describes this at the end of his life. After his father died, his brothers are afraid that Joseph's going to kill them. And so they come and try to talk to Joseph and fabricate this letter from from their father, but he says to them in Genesis 50, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So looking back on all that happened to him, what does Joseph say? He doesn't say to his brothers, yeah, what you did, that was good. Now he says, you meant evil. What you did was evil. But at the same time, God was at work for good. So though all of this evil was going on, all of this evil took place, God had a good plan. And he worked all of that evil together to accomplish his good plan. God is actively at work at all times. Even in the midst of the evil that was going on, God was at work for good. So all things in our life work together. And they work together because God is at work. We do not believe that things work together as a result of karma or fate or just impersonal forces. No, we believe that there is a good, loving, personal, all-wise God who is at completely sovereign over all things. 
There is absolutely nothing that is outside of God's control. And just two verses to, that we can look to for that are Psalm 115, verse 3, where the author says this. It says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. So God is sovereign over all, and He does whatever He wants to do. Similarly, from Proverbs 20, verse 21, verse 30, he says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar came to see that. Having been humbled by the Lord, what did he declare? He declared that no one can stay your hand or say to you, What have you done? God is sovereign over all. He is in control of all things. His control is such, though, that he is not to be blamed for any evil that goes on, nor does his control mean that we are not accountable for the way we live our lives. The Bible teaches both of those things, and it's not quite easy for us to understand how that works together, but the Bible clearly teaches that God is totally in control of all things. He's not to be blamed for any evil. And we are accountable and responsible for the way we live our lives. But that is the way in which we can know that all things work together for good because this sovereign God is at work. This sovereign God is in control of all things. And so he is taking all the threads of our lives and weaving them together to accomplish this good good purpose that he has planned. And so the question becomes, what is that What is that good? We could go around the room and everyone say just, well, what do you think that good is? What do you think the good thing is that God is doing? And we could come up, well, I think, you know, it's that he wants me to have a bigger house or he's ready for me to finally be healed of these things I've struggled with for so long or he's really going to give me that winning ticket to the lottery. And... We say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And I know a lot of people would like that. But what, what is the good? Well, we always have to take verse 29 with verse 28. When we say verse 28, we have to either keep in mind or explicitly say verse 29 because verse 29 explains what the good is according to which God is working all things. So what does he say in verse 29? For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God predestined this plan. God determined. God decided this is what's going to happen. And what is it? It's that we would be conformed to the image of his son. God's good plan for us as his children, is that we would be like Jesus. That's his, that's the, going back to the uh, knitting analogy, it's like that's the, that's the plan, I'm losing the word, but that's, that's the picture of this is what it's going to look like, this is what I'm working and weaving all things together to accomplish. So God's plan is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. 
And because he has determined that that is what's going to happen, every single thing that happens in our lives, God is weaving together toward that purpose. All things God is using and God determined to happen so that this would be accomplished. That we as his children would become more and more like Christ. And as believers, this should be one of our great desires in life, and this should be one of the the things for which we're living. Why do we live? What is the point? What is the point of our lives? One of them is this, to be like Jesus. That should be our longing, to be more and more like Christ. And notice what this means. If that is our great desire then the, the things about which we get angry because they're not according to how we had planned it, or the things about which we get anxious because we don't know what's going to happen, or the things about which we get so discouraged and so depressed, all of those things, what is God doing? He's taking all of those things to bring about the thing for which we long the most. We long to be like Jesus. And so when we know this verse, what does that mean? It means those things about which we're getting angry, those things about which we're anxious, we no longer have to have that. The things we most fear, our greatest, if you want to call them phobias, my mom used to always ask me, what's the worst thing that could happen? Let's come up with that list. List the worst possible things that could happen in your life. The things you most fear. The things that utterly debilitate you. As a believer, do we have to fear those things? Do we have to be discouraged or depressed that that might happen? Do we have to be angry because it's not happening as we think it should? No, because what does it mean? Even if the worst possible thing were to happen to us, God would take that to bring about the thing for which we long the most. So imagine, what is, what is it that, that we fear? Do we fear we will get dementia? Do we fear we might get cancer? Do we fear we might lose our job? Do we fear we might shake someone's hand that has germs on it? Do we fear our brother or sister might take away our toy? What do we fear? What we need to th- realize, what we, how we need to renew our mind, is that even if that were to happen, the thing I most fear, God will take that to bring about the thing I most desire. I, uh, this sermon is really just like things I've just <laughs> constantly preached to myself. So in my Bible, I actually written, wrote about this all things. I wrote down, therefore, even if what I fear most... Because of my idols takes place, God will use that for good to kill my idols and make me like Christ. When we get that, we don't have to fear. Because, yeah, we have these idols, and because of these idols, we want certain things, and because we want those things, we get angry and we get anxious. But when we see this, we realize, but God, I desire something more than these idols. And I am so thankful that no matter what happens, you will take that 
to kill my idols, to make me like Christ. So the question is, do we know this? You know, at the beginning, if I had asked you, do you know this? Yeah, you probably would have said, yeah, of course I know this. I've heard this a thousand times. I've, I have a little a magnet on my, my fridge about this verse. I've declared to be my life verse. I've taught about it in Sunday school. But do we really know it is the question. So there's some that, are, that may be saying, of course I know it. There's others that may be saying, you know what, I really don't care. I am so discouraged, so numb to everything, that I'm really utterly unmoved by this verse. I do not see how everything can work together for good because I feel utterly hopeless in this darkness. And then, likely and hopefully for the rest of us, we're saying, yeah, you know what? I, I know this verse, but I don't know it as I could, and I long to know it more. So, it's just just want us to close by considering three things about, about how we should know this verse and the way we can come to know it more. The first thing is just that we are to know this verse not merely in an informational way, but in a transformational way. So the real judge of our knowledge is not being able to just recite this verse, but by our being able to live this verse. The, the real test of whether we know this verse is not if we can say it, but how much of our life is marked by anxiety, by, by anger, by depression. That's the real test of it. And so to the degree in which our lives are marked by those things reveals whether we really know this verse or not. So the goal is that we would be transformed by it, not merely informed by it. And so, if we would seek that transformation, what must take place is that we must be constantly meditating upon it. The way we come to know this verse more, the way we come to truly be transformed by this verse, is by our ever meditating upon it and begging for the Lord to grant us understanding of it. Psalm 119, we see this. We see where the psalmist is saying, I meditate on your word, and by that I gain understanding. And when he cries out, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. We pray, deal bountifully with us that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things. We can see this verse, we can read this verse, but we cannot truly learn it unless the Lord grants us understanding. So we are to know it in a, in a transformational way, not merely informational. Second, we know this verse by faith, not by sight. That in difficult times, we cannot feel, we cannot see, we cannot experience the truth of this verse. Imagine Joseph in the pit, or imagine him on his way to, to Egypt to be sold as a slave. Imagine after he's been falsely accused and now is in prison. Do you think he felt it? Absolutely not. He couldn't have felt it. He couldn't have experienced it. It was only after he was brought out that he could see, yeah, now I understand. So in the same way for us, when we go through difficult times, this is a verse that we have to believe by faith, not by sight. 
not because we experience it, not because we can see it, not because we can feel it, but because this is what God has told us to be true. The the psalm I love in this regard is Psalm 130, where the psalmist is describing some type of darkness, some type of pit in which he finds himself, and he's crying out to God in the depths. And in the midst of that, what does he say? He says, God, I will wait for you, and I will hope in your word. So in in the suffering, in the darkness, when we look around and all we see is discouragement, we can't see any light, what do we do? We say, God, I will wait for you until you come. I don't know how long. Many Psalms, what are they doing? They're saying, how long, O Lord, how long? Say, God, I don't know how long it is, but I will wait for you. And as I wait, and I will wait because I hope in your word. Not because I can see through this darkness, not because I can see out of this pit, but because this is what you have told me in your word. So I will hope in that. There's a song that was done by the Gettys or the Shane and Shane. I don't know who wrote it, but both of them sing, sing it. And it says, I will wait for you. I will wait for you on your word. I will rely. I will wait for you. Surely wait for you till my soul is satisfied. We have to wait and accept it by faith. Last is it's a a verse we know by fighting, not by coasting. That if we would know this verse, we must fight by God's grace. Because our, our feelings, our circumstances, our experiences can be so overwhelming. They can feel like one wave after another crashing down upon us, threatening to drown us. And so if we merely give way, we will be drowned by all that goes on. But by God's grace, we can fight. By God's grace, we can fix our mind upon these truths. And so in this regard, we can consider Jeremiah and Lamentations 3, who, who in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem, in the midst of everything, all of God's promises seemingly coming to an end, he writes these words, But this I call to mind and therefore have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So he could have looked at his circumstances. He could have looked at everything around him and said, all is hopeless. But he says what? But this, but this I call to mind and therefore have hope. Not positive thinking. He's calling to mind, he's remembering God's character, which is true regardless of what we feel, regardless of what we experience. And so in the same way, when we go through difficult times, when we feel all is utterly hopeless, may we, by God's grace, call this to mind and so have hope that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose.
For this we need God's grace. We're not able to do it on our own. But how wonderful that we have this promise because we have a Savior who has conquered on our behalf. We fight because he has already won the battle. It's like my son and I just read David and Goliath this morning. Who are we? We're not David. We're all those people who were so terrified about this giant. And here goes our Savior out to defeat the giant. And having won the battle, what do we do? And it's like, okay, guys, we can go out and do it now. <laughs> he won it. We, we just have to follow him and, and fight because he has fought. And so in this fight, we must fight. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we do so because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. May God give us the grace we need to really know that. And let's pray together.